Hey guys, the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Zoom platform in partnership with the Audio Wave Network Studios inside the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, sponsored by the Ford Foundation. And we're also a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. And yes, we are still celebrating Black History Month, everybody. I am Orlando Bailey. And I am Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are excited to welcome Kevin Davidson, who serves as the Director of Design and Fabrication at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit. He served in various roles there for the last 40 years. He also <laughs> happens to be the love of Donna's life. Kevin Davidson, know. welcome back to Authentically. I'm to that man, but I don't even know him. <laughs> <laughs> the Kiki Palmer. I hate to say it. I don't know. I don't want to know him. Ridiculous, but I don't know who this man is. <laughs> who is he? Yeah, we just had a wonderful Valentine's Day weekend. Yes, um, we did. Starting on Friday with our grandchildren, <laughs> and um, and you know they get along really well now, so that's exciting. And then we yeah. went out to dinner on Saturday. Because you guys um, are a blended family. What an amazing example of like blending families. How's that going? It's fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. I mean, our family members all accept and like us being together, I think. Um, yeah. And, it, yeah. and it was a journey for a little bit, you know, um, because Kevin and I were both the same kind of parents. We were like these parents who gave all of ourselves to our children. Right. Yeah. They're like, what? You are thinking about somebody other than me right now. I'm not first among you. <laughs> right. Well, you know what? No. <laughs> Am I lying, Kevin? <laughs> no, it's absolutely the truth. Absolutely the truth. It's That's like so we are the center of your life. What are you talking about? <laughs> Get ready to hook up with somebody. As AJ Johnson <laughs> said in the movie Baby Boy, directed by John Singleton, mama gotta have a life too. Daddy gotta have a life. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and in this instance, so does daddy, you know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you wanna know what's funny? I, I'm experiencing that in reverse. My mother is watching me navigate, uh, you know, me being in the throes of, you know, a relationship where I'm just head over heels. And she's like, Soon, sooner or later, I'm going to be the weakest link. I said, you better figure it out. You better figure it out. <laughs> you know, you know, it's so beautiful. Um, I went to see my mother in the hospital today. Mm -hmm. And she says everything, you know, my mother, she's um, dealing with some memory loss stuff. How is Kevin? How is Kevin? Tell Kevin I love him every time I see her. Yeah. And yep. um, that's my know. girl. And when I go to see, we visit Kevin's mother, she says, Oh, come over here. And she always gives me a big hug. And, you know, she's yeah. always glad to see me. And 
I'm her girl. And, you know, yeah. it's so wonderful <laughs> to have that. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, you know, Valentine's Day was special. It's um, unspecial because, you know, we're still in the pandemic, even though we don't know we are. Um, but it was still, <laughs> we had a, a good time. And then, as you know, I worked on um, on Monday, but Kevin cooked me not one, but two meals That's yesterday. Right. I mean, you setting the bar high for us, Kevin. Like, hey, how doing was some Valentine's Day love. That's all. <laughs> I'm telling you. I call all her. The, all the, the boyfriends, the husbands going to be mad when their significant others listen to this and hear uh-huh. how you be showing out. Kevin be showing out, man. Listen, I call her sweet baby. Every time you see that, you know who I'm talking about. So you know oh. I'm right. <laughs> I love it. And the, just the love that you two share is still it's still so palpable. It's like I remember talking to you guys when you first got home from your honeymoon and <laughs> yeah. the glow and the happiness and the smiles. Like yeah. I wish y'all could see how they smile from ear to ear talking about, you know, each other and their families. That's an, it's an amazing testament. Amazing yeah. testament. Love is love. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. It is time for hot takes where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of detroit for hot takes michigan gop revives attempts to overhaul state election laws this is by olivia lewis um, for bridge detroit um i'm not sure uh our listeners or if we covered this before don i think we may have but there was a slate of uh i would say voter suppression bills sent to the governor's desk last fall that she vetoed and she actually signed those vetoes at the NAACP Freedom Fund dinner. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. that uh, last fall. Um, and now what we are seeing in a committee in the Michigan legislature um, in the House is that um, they are trying to figure out in the House Elections and Ethics Committee how to you know, uh, overhaul state election laws yet again and you know uh, a fair and uh, thorough audit has been done of our election laws and the 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 determination continues to be that Michigan's election laws have already and are already fair Um, we have had determination at the determination that the 2020 presidential election was done in a fair way with uh, minimal Uh, mishaps and mistakes um, in the state of Michigan. Uh, What I perceive this to be is, you know, I'm going to just call it what I see it as coded racism, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to be enshrined in policy to suppress and to discount specifically the Black vote that is coming out of the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. I will never forget uh, and it is forever ingrained in my memory. I think I'm traumatized by it. The, the the banging on the walls at the Central County Board after the 2020 presidential election with folks, white a white mob, as British Detroit described it, yelling, mm-hmm. stop the vote. We had challengers in the actual Central County Board saying, stop the steal, yelling to stop the steal and intimidating our, our voter election uh, volunteers. This is an outright assault on our democracy and the freedom, the freedoms that we share in the state of Michigan to elect to vote absentee, the drop boxes that we are able to vote with, the, 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 whole, the whole gamut. And so um, the governor vetoed those bills 
um, with an explanation of, you know, there's not money to pay for it. How are you going to pay for it? And the House Elections and Ethics Committee has still yet to address that question. And so it's really interesting to me as we head into the midterms that we are still having this conversation about fairness, this conversation about the legitimacy of the Black vote, uh, not only in Detroit, but the Black vote in Baltimore, the Black vote in Philadelphia, the Black vote in Atlanta, and other major metropolises around the United States, and how states are, states, state legislatures are in an outright assault on our election laws. Um, Donna, what say you? I think it's going to backfire, honestly. I think that if these um, bills go through, there's about, you know, 25, 30% of the Detroit electorate that's going to vote regardless. I don't care how hard you make for me to vote, I'm voting, right? Mm -hmm. So to some extent, you know, they're going to change the time frame and extend the time frame for people's signatures to be accepted if they're absentee voters, but we'll find a way around that. I strongly believe we will. But when people try to take something away from you that you take for granted, that makes you want it even more. Yeah. So I think that we will be able to mobilize people to go that extra mile. You know, back when, when I started voting, we didn't have online voting. We didn't have absentee ballots. We didn't have anything. We just went to the polls, right? And the polls right. were really long. Um, so we are capable of voting without those conveniences. And if yeah. they want to make voting hard for us, that will, I think, make it easier for us to motivate people and understand just how valuable it is. If our votes didn't matter. They wouldn't try so hard to take them away. So we've got to try to fight back. I know there's also some bills that are pending or there's some um, some um, petitions, drives that are going out to try to change and counter that with other mm -hmm. measures, as mm -hmm. I recall, yes. um, where they're trying to have a voter referendum that would actually overrule whatever the um, the the governor vetoed. Governor, yeah, no, yeah. well, the on the the, the Republicans have their own voter re re referendum, but I'm hearing that there's another and that okay. other voter ref referendum. And so you may have to, um, it may be a constitutional crisis, but if this prevails, we will find a way to vote. When people knew they had to vote and they understood the value of it, they showed up. Yeah. Um, so um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a reflection of just how little regard these folks have for us. The fact that they don't want us to be able to influence elections, the fact that they understand that without Black people, Donald Trump would have won Michigan. And what does that say about Michigan? That you needed Black people to save us, but you know, we right. always come through, right? <laughs> or the nation, what does that say about the nation? You exactly. Need black people to save, to save the nation. You know, the, the duality here is that there is an active attempt to suppress the vote, but I think we also need to think about policies um, and measures to protect the vote once it is cast, right? Because what we saw was not what we saw in 2020 was not was not a preemptive, a, a outright preemptive measure to suppress the vote ahead of the election, but a measure to discount the yeah. votes that had been cast. And I think that is an important distinction when we talk about uh, voter laws and when we talk about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that can't get out of the house right yeah. um it is it's exhausting but we gotta we gotta we gotta keep at it right we do we do and we have to you know continue fighting we have to understand that we were never free we've never really had our full citizenship rights granted to us we've been fighting for full citizenship for 400 years or full personhood for 400 years we have to fight 400 more probably but i think that we get comfortable <laughs> 
and start thinking we're equal, we're, everything is even, it is not. Mm. Our public policy is based on the concept of a white man being a full citizen and everybody else being a subset of that. Whether mm. it is a woman having to protect her reproductive rights, even though white women fight against black people, but women still have to um, protect reproductive rights, are still fighting for equality. We, need, we, didn't, we never even um, passed an equal rights amendment, right? And so yeah. we're, we're living in a nation where you still have discrimination against women on so many different levels mm. in science and you know, wages and, say, and reproductive scale. rights. And so Absolutely. we have that, but you also have Black people who have been here and were granted citizenship in the um, 15th Amendment. And then about 20 years later, they tried to retract it and say, well, it doesn't really, you know, equality doesn't mean anything. And then you had separate but equal. Um, so it, it, it was really surprising to me when I was doing some research to find out the first civil rights bill was not in 1963, which is what I knew about, mm -hmm. but in 1865. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've, not 1865, 76, I think, something like that. Mm -hmm. There was a first civil rights bill that was passed. And that civil rights bill granted full citizenship. And then it was reversed by another bill and then it was reversed by the courts and they began chipping away at those rights. So um, in fact, I'm gonna get the actual date when the first civil rights bill was yeah. passed. Um, um, but, Do that. But I think that, that we, we, can, we have to understand that the Civil Rights Act did one thing, 1866. Civil mm. Rights Act of 1866. Wow. And what did, what did it promise? What did it guarantee? <laughs> um, equality of all citizens of the United States in the enjoyment of civil rights and immunities, um, that all things civil, social, political, all citizens without distinction of race or color should be equal. Mm. Wow. It was absolute. And then later what ended up happening is the United States said, yeah, well, the government can't discriminate, but the private sector can because the government doesn't control the private sector. Kevin and I were joking the other day. I think it was right. Kevin who said they privatize racism. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny, but it's so, it's so it's you true. know, laughing, no, no. but it's, it's such a true statement. It I happens mean, look, on, look at, it happens look at on golf system. courses every day, right? Now. Right. And the prison systems and how yeah. much money is being made. Like who are who are the vendors? Who are the contractors? Mm -hmm. All, there's money being made uh, in yeah. the private sector that is built uh, off the 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 uh, touchstone of racism. Even mm -hmm. even these roads, like this infrastructure bill that has passed, and you know the road fixes that are getting ready to happen, the the resurfacing of I three seventy five. Who mm -hmm. doing that stuff? Who getting paid? Who the contractor? You know what I mean? Like yes, they privatize. Right. <laughs> absolutely. I love that so much. I was like, I would just start using that. They privatize racism, but you know what I mean? <laughs> racism was always private, right? Because yes, it's always right. been about the interest of private individuals, private companies. That's the foundation of our nation was yeah. benefiting private entities, um, whether it is a um, person who owns forced labor camps and is producing um, goods and services on forced labor camps, or it is a person who owns a factory where you're just underpaying people and putting them in dangerous conditions. So at any rate, this law to me is a reflection or this effort is a reflection of something that we need to recognize and organize and be prepared to fight against. Yeah. And we need to understand that we have to stand together on some things. And this is one of them. Yeah, I think so. 
Uh, hot takes. Cody Pershing will be rebuilt as a part of a $700 million Detroit school district proposal. All right. So uh, DPSCD Superintendent Nikolai Vidi presented a facilities plan to uh, the Detroit uh, Board of Education, the Detroit Public School System Community District Board of Education. <laughs> Did I get it right? Um, that uh, outlines, you know, how the district wants to spend $700 million for uh, facility upgrades, um, the, the renovations of some school buildings, the closing of some school buildings, but also rebuilding um, uh, some school buildings where there is a demand, they call them high demand neighborhoods where there is a higher demand for services and in other neighborhoods where services are less in demand, sort of like closing some of those schools. Clark would be a school that will be phased out in this facilities plan that's on the east side. We always want to talk to our east side folks, right? Um, Foch uh, would be another one that will, uh, it's our, which is already vacant, but uh, figuring out how to re reuse that building and or sell uh, some of these buildings. Keep in mind that the Detroit Public School Community District received about $1.2 billion in ARPA funds, right? And so this is, uh, or in federal funds. Yeah, I think it was ARPA money. Um, this is $700 million um, in the pot. Uh, met with some praise and some criticism on part of uh, the school board, Sonia Mays wanted to see something more innovative uh, uh, and more uh, cutting edge as it relates to the learning experience beyond the, the physical facilities uh, that the schools are in. Um, but, you know, the chair, uh, chair Chairwoman Harville, praised um, uh, VD's um, facilities plan, whom, you know, he contends that the district hasn't had a facilities plan in years. One of the things that is interesting to me is that it also lays out a plan to uh, phase out buildings and to figure out how to sell buildings. DPS owns a lot of vacant buildings in the city of Detroit. They're one of the largest landowners in the city of Detroit. And a lot of the buildings that they own that are vacant are also terribly blighted. Um, we also know that the sale of Cooley High School is pending what happens with this facilities plan. And we know that the nonprofit Life Remodeled um, is vying for the opportunity to uh, buy Cooley High School and turn it into uh, a replica of what they did with the Durfee School, uh, this, this programmed and leased out space that is receiving mixed reviews, uh, some community support and some folks against it. Uh, and it's, you know, sort of highly, it's been a highly controversial thing. And so uh, we're going to see a shift in you know, operable buildings, um, some rebuilds, um, some renos. What do y'all think? Well, let me start with this. Um, it's not going to be what happened with the Durfee Society because with the Durfee Society, they purchased a building for about a dollar and they forced kindergarten school students to be, or to be educated in the same school building as 12th graders. Mm. They decide it's only K through 12 school in the city of Detroit Central is a K through 12 school. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe Central High School? Central is is it K through 12 or is it six through twelve? Whatever it is, Central, they closed Durfee. And um 
Great Lake Holes, Durfee, and they consolidated the all of the grades in one school building. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and so um, that was a big part of the controversy is how could you have little kids in the same school building as 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 younger students. So I'm just going through because I want to make sure that I have the information correct. Yeah, well, well, as you find the information, uh, Ethan writes from Chuckbee, Detroit, that during the during February, the rest of February and March, the district will conduct virtual community meeting sessions open initially to specific neighborhoods defined by their feeder patterns, so the feeder school patterns, as well as in-person community meetings open to the broader public. And the public will hear, will have the opportunity to hear in detail the physical conditions of these buildings, learn more about the district's recommendations and provide feedback. We also know that, you know, there was a water crisis in the DPS school buildings and kids couldn't drink from the water fountains in DPS. Mm -hmm. We also know that in some buildings, kids during the winter time had to keep their coats and things on and, you know, things of, things of that sort. And so we know that there has been um, a need to address uh, Detroit Public School Community District's facilities um, but is this the best and highest use of $700 million? I mean, why, how do, why do you hire a superintendent? You know, I say, well, if that's not the best, but you hire a superintendent to figure that stuff out. Absolutely. And, um, I, you know, unless you have something specific that you wanted to see, I'm not certain what you look at. Are, are we talking about more technology inside of schools? I mean, I think that the most important thing is teachers. The most important mm -hmm. resource inside of a school is qualified teachers who love kids and take care of them. All of the rest of it is just bells and whistles. This is just my opinion. And so yeah, I, having- can I, read those, you, can I read to you the quote from Sonia Mays? Because I think this is speaking to what you're saying. She said, and quote, there's a sense that we should be conservative and responsible with these limited dollars. But I also believe this is our time to really push for something innovative. To me, the plan represents an opportunity to uh, really um, reimagine in some form or fashion how we are providing teaching and learning. But again, you know, um, we've already raised Detroit public school teachers, so they are now earning more than most of the suburban peers. That was done by BD and it was done with some of these ARPA dollars. You got to give them credit for that. I was so yeah. excited to celebrate that change. We are now attracting teachers back into the district. So when people talk about innovations and te teaching and learning, they may be talking about distance learning. They may be talking about integrating some other types of things. And I think those things need to happen. On the other hand, simply putting computer labs in schools does not change that school culture. <laughs> I've been inside of schools where students sit in front of a computer and the computer is just a, a, a prop on the desk because they haven't figured out how to integrate use of that kind of distance learning into the schools. We know the EAA uh, was innovative and it got rid of teachers and used stuff. So I would like to know what innovation Sonia Mays wants to see inside of schools. I'm not mm. convinced that's there. Um, I think the idea of replacing um, um, Durfee and, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Cody, Cody and Pershing with a new school mm. is extremely important. Mm -hmm. We know that the Cody school building has been in terrible condition with ceilings falling down and leaks inside the building. Mm. Our friend Kenyatta, um, has talked about that at length because that's yeah. in her neighborhood. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's super important. I'm glad to see that. Probably the most exciting thing for me is for people who've known me for a long time that he wants to explore a public-private partnership to build a state-of-the-art athletic complex in the city. Yeah. 
that would include indoor and outdoor facilities for football, basketball, volleyball, soccer, baseball, track. Come to the east side. Do it on the east side. Uh, Well, you know, wherever you do, we need an indoor track in the city of Detroit. Not having a a practice track and a competition track um, puts us at a disadvantage. And students in Detroit have to travel to East Lansing or Ann Arbor or Ypsilanti to access indoor track facilities. And yet, you know, we could be hosting these tournaments. I agree with him. It could be a revenue generator because you see a lot of school districts in um, the Grand Rapids area that are able to host different types of competitions because they have the facilities for it. And so to me, that is imaginative. And it's also a way to get our kids into great facilities Mm -hmm. doing works. Um, You know, when I went to Prince George's um, County, they have a Nike indoor sports complex that is amazing. And since then, I've wanted to see the same thing in Detroit. In Geneva, Ohio, they have very, they have one of the most amazing sports complexes there that you will ever see, built by an air conditioner. I can't even remember the name of this athletic complex, but it's absolutely amazing. They hold regional um, competitions there. They have um, college competitions. They have high school competitions, elementary competitions. And everybody loves Detroit. Everyone loves coming here now. So right. So yeah. let's 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 create athletic facilities for our young people. State of the art. I love it. I just hope there's also a swimming pool because so many of our young people don't have access to swimming. And, but some of these old buildings, these old DPS buildings have swimming pools. How do we, how do we, how do we reactivate those? Yeah. Put the money, you got to put the money and hopefully that's in the facilities plan, but without a specific plan. Now in terms of selling the school to um, um, life, um, what is it? Um, Life remodeling. Life remodeled. I'm not in favor of selling the school to life remodeled without a competitive bid process. I know there's at least one other organization that is attempting to purchase the school. Um, For them to, I didn't like the way life remodeled announced that they were going to purchase a school and do this plan without getting the right to purchase it. I think that um, that that is just a dishonest way to try to force the hand of the superintendent or the board and the board has to approve that. Right. Um, <laughs> I hear you. So um, <laughs> can I also name this? And I think this is um, I think this is unique to Detroit or it may not be. You guys can correct me. But I think that Detroiters have a, a real affection for some of our our built environment, the spaces that we've once inhabited, like some of these schools. Right. Um, what does it look like? Uh, to grieve, you know, the loss of some of these physical spaces and to see uh, some of these beautiful buildings in total disrepair, some of which would have to be demolished. I think about, I think about Jackson Middle School over there near ECN, Donna, and it's Jackson term McNair, but it's closed and it's been vacant, but it was a, it was a beautiful building. It was a school, it was a school that uh, my mom went to. And every time she rides by, it's like, there's this there's this pensive this pensiveness how how do we how do we grieve these these buildings that were home to us and so many of our formative experiences i mean school closures are a mess the decision to school close schools in detroit helped depopulate the city as much as any other policy did you mm-hmm. close a school and you put blight right in the middle of the neighborhood in the school building 
and the school building is no longer serving as the community center, neighborhood schools no longer exist, kids can't walk to school. And then we wonder why we have an attendance problem. Everybody's got, we have what, 40% of households in Detroit don't have cars of their own and we're not always providing bus transportation to schools. And then we wonder why kids are going to charter schools because public schools stopped functioning as a neighborhood resource. And that was public policy that started in the early 2000s and has continued uh, continuing all through all through emergency management. I don't know if you remember when Robert Bob put 30 schools, uh, Bob. Bob, uh, put 30 schools he said were underperforming. And he said, you know, we're going to sell these schools to charter school providers. Well, that's like GM selling off lines of cars to, you know, Ford. Who does that? Why are you arming the competition with your buildings? And the providers who ended up in the schools couldn't maintain them. That's the reason Hamilton elementary, middle school ended up in such disrepair. You had good people, well-meaning people thinking they knew what to do and they didn't. They drove down the student population. If you look at what happened with Central, Central is almost destroyed by the EAA. I mean, not, not Central, well, Central too. I'm, I mean, um, Southeastern. Southeastern was almost destroyed by the EAA. Yeah. But I wanna go back to an earlier point about Central. It was Central Collegiate Academy is what it was going to be called. I don't know if it's still functioning in that way, but there was absolutely a plan to move elementary and middle school students from Durfee to Central. A big part of the outcry was the, you know, ridiculousness of putting all of those students in the same school building on the basis of some of the school is underutilized because the EAA, again, pushed kids out of the school into other schools. Um, and, you know, when you, you don't, I don't believe VD would allow for that, but I think that Life Remodeled has to answer for that if they want to gain community trust. Getting a school building for a dollar and being part of a decision, even though they said that that decision was made before they offered to buy the school, I don't know anybody who believes it. Being part of a decision that would co-locate a kindergarten in the same school as a 12th grader is, um, is some of the policy. I think what VD is running up against is people who are still angry about some decisions not being willing to trust the superintendent to make good decisions today. Yeah. But there's if you don't trust the superintendent, you have to get rid of them. If you have a better idea, and Sonia Mays may very well have a better idea for teaching and learning. She's not an educator, and it always scares me with non-educators come up with ideas or start pushing that agenda. I would really want to hear what do principals say? What do teachers say? What are the people who are working in these school buildings saying about what's needed? Are their imaginations being tapped? I love that point. Wow. That puts a great button on this conversation. And that's going to wrap up hot takes. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. All right. So we have Kevin Davidson here from the right to talk to us about preserving and honoring Black history, as well as the legacy of Dr. Wright. Donna, since this is your love, <laughs> the love of your life, I'm going to let you lead the, this right. in. Yes. All right. So I told Kevin, I know where all the bodies are buried, so be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> um, no. Kevin, you started working at the right. And, and I just want to say there was a great interview that Orlando did on American Black Journal with Kevin that is still on the American Black Journal website. And I think um, it was just um, it was just on another news station. 
It was on. It was on. It was on One Detroit. We'll drop a link in the description of the podcast. So you yeah. Guys so we'll, we'll drop a link, but be sure to watch that interview because they did a great job. Um, and that's a visual interview. But um, Kevin, you started working at the right when you were um, how old? I was actually twenty three. Okay. When I started, uh, yeah. but I was on loan to uh, the Wright Museum in nineteen eighty. So I was kind of working on and off for the Wright Museum. I was working for the Detroit Council of the Arts at the time. And that comes from a competition that I entered when I was in high school. And um, I, I won uh, first, second, and third place in best in show. And so, um, they gave me a scholarship to take art classes at the, the Pontiac Creative Arts Center. And that's where I met um, this gentleman who was head of uh, the art department for the Detroit Public Schools. Mm -hmm. I can't remember his name right now. But um, he was the one who uh, invited me to Detroit. I met with him in his office. And uh, he was, was the one who uh, arranged for me to get this job with the Detroit Council of the Arts. And so I worked there for about a year. Um, and during that time, I was placed on loan. Some of that time I was placed on loan to the museum to work on an exhibit uh, that uh, was focused on black insurance companies. And I was 20 at the time, 19 or 20. Um, and, you know, it was out of that work that I was invited back to, to the museum to design um, an exhibit on Black voting rights and another one on Charles Drew uh, by Dr. Wright. So, you know, um, you were, you went to Alabama State for your first year of college mm -hmm. yes. and then you transferred. Talk yes. about that. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, these uh, Omegas played such a pivotal role in my life. You know, when I was uh, at about the Q's. Yeah, the Q's, man. The <laughs> they, they were trying to recruit me. I just wasn't. What? You know, <laughs> just wasn't. Don't get in trouble now. Don't get in trouble. Right, right. Okay. But um, there were a number of them at Pontiac uh, Northern High School where I was. And uh, they were the ones who really arranged for me to go to Alabama State University. I mean, they pulled all the strings and, and um, uh, because of that, you know, the winning that competition like a couple of years in a row, I got, you know, scholarship money from, from, uh, it was called a Thor scholarship and some other sources. And so they set me up at Alabama State University. Um, and it was Dr. Wright's alma mater as well, you know. And so um, coming back to Detroit, it was like when I started working at the museum, I was surrounded by them. <laughs> right. But, but I'm, I'm trying to get you to say what happened when you left Alabama State? Where were you? Um. 
when I left Alabama State, I, I, I uh, actually had a college professor down there who was a Cranbrook, um, uh, he was a Cranbrook uh, graduate. Mm -hmm. And he told me that I had no business being down there because Alabama State is, is basically uh, producing and graduating art teachers. And, you know, I needed to go on and do something greater. So he helped me to put my portfolio together uh, so that I could go to CCS and present my portfolio and get accepted. And so I did that. And it was actually the second time I presented a portfolio. The first time I was rejected. So after, you know, he worked with me and mentored me and, you know, helped me to to uh, get the right pieces in that portfolio, I was accepted at CCS. And uh, I started there um, in 1980. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Talk about, you know, this is fascinating to me uh, because I remember uh, when the, the building on Warren, the current mm -hmm. edifice opened, I was very, very young and I remember going, mm -hmm. uh, but you've been with the right, it all three talk about talk about yeah. this journey of you know this moving from one place to the next and uh how the current edifice which was for a long time the largest museum for african-american history in the nation now is second to the smithsonian but it was the mm. it was the largest for a long time how that got built because i i think that story is fascinating it is yeah you know when i started uh with the museum over on the boulevard you know, we had a series of little rooms that we converted to uh, gallery spaces. And we had this mobile unit that was sitting out front um, that had uh, an exhibit on black inventors in there. So it was my job to go in and refresh all of these gallery spaces and redo the mobile unit. Got some money from the Michigan uh, Council for the Arts um, to redo the mobile unit. And uh, so that was part of my job. But, um, you know, you could really see and feel uh, Dr. Wright's vision even then. I mean, when I was working there, there is no concept at that point that, you know, we're going to move to a, a larger, grander facility, you know, we, right now, our, you know, my, my, um, Y'all on the boulevard. <laughs> like, yeah, that's my that's my picture of what the museum is, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I start seeing these these drawings and these renderings of um, of what the possibilities were, and uh, and then Dr. Wright um, aligned with Coleman Young, and they had some shared visions there. Uh, Coleman Young was the one who pulled together the resources um, to uh, build the second museum. And so uh, he made the land available and uh, um, provided some uh, city uh, resources that uh, helped out um, you know, with the architectural drawings and the building um, contractors and and uh, made that vision um, become a reality, you know? And so That's I remember- That's amazing. Yeah. 
And so uh, my job was to go down to community and economic development every Friday and you know, represent the museum's interests down there. So we had these meetings and you know, that's where I really got a chance to see the, the blueprints and drawings. And it was so crazy because um, we constructed this second facility from the ground up. Um, and even before, you know, we cut that ribbon, you know, to unveil and, and uh, uh, open that museum, they were already drawing up plans for the next one. Now, who, who was drawing up those plans? And was this something that Dr. Wright envisioned or initiated? Mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, it's like I say, it's, it was Dr. Wright's vision. Um, I the saw- the second museum? Yeah, yeah, it was Dr. Wright's. Well, let me put it this way. Um, Dr. Wright was more interested in seeing the second building become a reality. And, and um, he was really more interested in uh, seeing that happen and, you know, bring in, you know, some resources to, to uh, sustain that institution and felt like um, the facility we are in now was a, a, a white elephant. That's how he referred to it. <laughs> and, you know, there was a, a bit of a conflict there between Dr. Wright and Coleman Young in terms of that vision, you know, and-, and Oh and man, it oh my gosh, this is rich. Yeah, and so, so Dr. Oh. Wright, his plan was to establish a foundation. He brought his daughter in to, uh, to run that. And, um, you know, they were going to generate the, the financial resources to sustain that second museum. And that's, and, you know, that's basically how he saw it. But Coleman Young saw a, you know, a bigger, a vision. grander vision, grander, wow. much grander. You know, I think it's, I think that's fascinating that you, you, you were there and have been there all those years and to mm -hmm. witness uh, Comey Young and Dr. Wright commiserate. I, I also just want to make clear that, Kevin, you worked directly with Dr. Wright, you yes. know, the Detroit's baby deliverer. <laughs> I, 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 I want you to talk about your relationship with Dr. Wright yeah. um, um, and, and what it was like uh, mm -hmm. working for him, being mentored by him. Tell, tell us about Dr. Wright, the man. Yeah. Um, Dr. Wright, was very focused and vision driven, mission driven. I mean, you know, uh, he was just intense, you know, and uh, he had so many different things going on because, you know, he's an established uh, obstetrician, uh, gynecologist, um, and he's coming up with different um, techniques for delivering babies and all of that. So, you know, he's an innovator in a, his field, but at the same time, you know, he's a community activist um, uh, involved directly in the civil rights movement. Uh, when 
um, Martin Luther King and John Lewis and others uh, walked across the Pettus excuse me, bridge on Bloody Sunday. Dr. Wright was there. He was one. Oh my of God! The I don't think I knew that. Yeah, he was one of the attending physicians there. Donna, did you know that? Oh well, yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, he was mind. actually involved in uh, in ensuring that those who were walking across that bridge, you know, include Martin Luther King, uh, got the word to turn around and go back because they were trying to uh, flank them and catch them off guard and attack them from both sides. And so he sent word you know, for them to turn around. Um, and, you know, here's the thing, uh, you know, he uh, attended to the injuries of some of those individuals um, during that day. And um, the very next day, he got on a plane and came back to Detroit. And that's when he assembled this group of citizens here in the city to found the Museum of African-American History here in Detroit. So our museum was, was founded under the fire of the civil rights movement, you know, movement. So, yeah. I am, I am blown away. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I knew that. But what you are, mm -hmm. what you are describing and what you are, what you are doing mm -hmm is telling the truth about our history. Yes. Um, uh, and I think there is an outright assault against truth telling mm -hmm. of our history in an attempt to whitewash it. Uh, what role do you play and what role does the museum play in telling our collective truths? Like the you truth know, you just shared, because that's amazing. Yeah. And I, I've always been inspired by Dr. Wright's um, need and, and, and commitment uh, and willingness to look at history and, and make sure that the truth is told as it relates to uh, African-Americans and, and, and how we got here, uh, the discrimination against us and uh, the lies that were told and the the achievements and innovations that we have made you know he had been really focused on ensuring that the truth was told about all of that and he was um interested largely in ensuring that african-american children um knew this history and understood this history mm -hmm. because it is tied directly to who they are as individuals and to know, you know, your place here in this world and world history and in this society and how you and your people uh, have contributed and continue to contribute to the greatness of this nation and the world. So one of the most controversial exhibits you've ever had, if not the most controversial exhibit, um, was the Monticello exhibit mm -hmm. <laughs> a couple of years ago. 
Um, there are protests outside the building and people thought you are really going to um, be highlighting this story about Thomas Jefferson, who was, you know, obviously um, a child rapist, a slaver, or just a terrible person in many ways, although he was a father of this country. What does that say about this country? Anyway, um, um, but when you went, you played a specific role in trying to, um, you couldn't eliminate the exhibit, but you played a specific role in trying to tell some truth even within those confines. Can you talk about that? Yes, when I received word that this exhibit was coming and did a little research and, uh, you know, got a feel for what the contents was going to be, uh, I traveled to the African American Museum in Dallas, Texas, where it was on display, on exhibit. And um, I was really disturbed by the way it was organized there. When you walked in, you saw you know, Thomas Jefferson front and center. Um, and, you know, there's this big photograph of Thomas Jefferson and this big photograph of his number one slave. And, you know, it, it, it really, it really disturbed me. Um, and this exhibit is going, you know, it's, it's traveling to African-American museums. Um, under the premise that there's some sort of storyline and a focus on Sally Hemings. But yet I'm looking at this exhibit and you know her story is buried way in the back somewhere in some room. Mm. And mm. I was really disturbed by that. So I was determined that when this exhibit came to our museum, I'm laying this thing out so that Thomas Jefferson is as far in the back as possible. And Sally Hemings and her story was gonna take center stage in the front of the gallery, both galleries. So in our Chase Gallery, you know, that was just totally de dedicated to Sally Hemings and her family. And then in our AT&T gallery, which is the largest, we started it off with Sally Hemings. And, um, you know, she, she pretty much took up a good, uh, the, the front half of that portion of the exhibit. So uh, I was I mean, what an amazing that. and creative way. And this is hard for a lot of us. To, mm -hmm. to decenter whiteness in our truth telling and, yeah. and acknowledging our history, right? Mm -hmm. It's, I, I, I know that it, it can be difficult mm -hmm. uh, for us to, to do that, but what an amazing way to do that, Kevin, and to even have the forethought in mind uh, to do it because not everyone thinks like that. That's true. And, and uh, you know, Monticello, a Smithsonian that's traveling this, they weren't happy with that, you know? Right. <laughs> they were not happy with that, you know? But every step of the way, you know, I made it clear to them, this is what we're gonna do, you know? Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for us to have it here. You know, this is what we're gonna do. Um, but, you know, it, 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 you, you've, we've gotta be committed to that, you know? We were talking earlier about um, you know, our struggles and our fight that we've been fighting for 400 years, you know, we're formidable. And 
you know, our everyday existence is part of the fight, you know, everything that we do, you know, and so organizing that exhibit the way I did is part of the fight, part of telling our story, telling Sally Hemings story, you know, and telling the truth. Hmm. We talked about, you know, Dr. Wright and the truth. And uh, that's, that's part of our mission really is to tell the truth. Yeah. Well, the museum that. has a couple of exhibits. Yeah. One of this I'm super excited about is the Tuskegee Airmen exhibit. Mm-hmm. And I know that was a process. But the Tuskegee, <laughs> yes. uh, the, the, the museum is now housed inside of the right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, uh, you don't have to go to Detroit Airport or whatever city airport mm-hmm. to see it. You can go into the right. Um, can you talk about that, where it is and where it's going? It. Uh, it's actually housed in this gallery that's called the Comb and Young Gallery within the museum on the main level. And it was initially uh, an archives space. And so it was converted to gallery space and uh, it was going to be focused on um, community exhibitions. And so when we were approached by the um, Tuskegee Airmen Museum um, and our, some of our board members got together and they just worked out this agreement to um, bring the collection that was uh, at Fort Wayne as part of Fort Wayne. Uh, mm-hmm. the historical museum. Uh, they basically shut that museum down. That was one of the locations uh, for the Tuskegee Airmen Museum there on Fort Wayne. That was shut down, but the collection was still there. So we went over there, went through the collection and uh, identified uh, a number of great objects um, and special collections and letters and uh, you know, uniforms and, and uh, little kits that they used and, you know, uh, basically the life of a Tuskegee Airman. You know, we brought it to our museum. Um, the gallery space was a little smaller. I expanded the space um, to uh, include an area that was sort of like a originally a coat room and ticketing space and just kind of broke through uh, a a double cinder block wall there to increase the the footprint of the gallery space. And then, you know, because as I said earlier, it was an archival space, you had all of this uh, HVAC uh, (laughs) running through there, different components, because it was supposed to be a space that's uh, maintained at 65 degrees or something like papers that. papers and yeah. all that stuff. So, yes. mm-hmm. And I wanted to hang planes in the ceiling, you know? <laughs> so we had to go through and remove all of that, the sprinkler system and reconfigure that and electrical. And it was a real challenge. Um, but we got it done. And so now it's an exhibition there that tells the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, we've got some technology in there with the interactive iPads throughout and 
Um, in the young gallery, right? Of, yes. And, and he was one of them, right? Yes, and he was. Yes. That was super he, cool. He super was actually cool. a bomber pilot. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about uh, the current uh, King Tut exhibit. <laughs> um, and, you know, it. I think we're celebrating the 100 year anniversary of some of these artifacts being um, excavated and founded. Right, right, yeah. right. 100 years ago, 19, I mean, yeah, 1922. Yeah. Uh, when those uh, artifacts were um, discovered in, in Tut's tomb. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so uh, we brought this exhibition here uh, about a decade ago. Uh, it was slightly different. It's under new ownership, the, the collection itself. And so um, the objects we're displaying this time are, are slightly different, but uh, it's an opportunity for us to tell a story of King Tut and uh, you know, display, you know, these great works um, and commemorate this 100 year uh, period uh, of discovering uh, these uh, artifacts. And um, it's, it's been extremely um, popular at this point. We've got a lot of people coming through to see it and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's dealing with um, King Tut and uh, his um, all the things that were that were found uh, in his burial chamber, and that's in one gallery. Just kind of focused there, and then the public, what we call the public King Tut, is in our larger gallery. So you know that's uh, Nefertiti and. Mm. and uh, Tut and Con not just Tut, but but you know uh, his whole family lineage and and uh, uh, so you've got artifacts um, that uh, are sculptures and and chariots and that sort of thing throughout uh, the uh, public area. So it's a beautiful exhibition. We um, tapped into a um, ancient uh, Egyptian color scheme and putting yeah. it together. So there's some symbolism there. You know, the blue uh, represents uh, God and the heavens. <clears throat> the gold represents the land and the sun. Um, and the red represents life and uh, the royal lineage. You know, so we managed yeah, to get line. that work in there. So it's yeah. a it's, it's a beautiful exhibit, and we want everybody to come out and see it. So and that's the thing. we got to get yeah. people out to see this. Right. So I'm yes. also excited yeah. about the work that you've been doing in the core core exhibit. Now I'd be happy, mm -hmm. honest. I didn't see the core exhibit until you showed me the core exhibit. When we started dating. I'm kind of embarrassed <laughs> by that because my kids are like, "You haven't seen that? I've been there, there like five times." But I think schools did field trips there. Mm -hmm. And I just had not been to this the through the core exhibit, um, and I, it's, it's, it was stunning to me. I mean, so many things I learned in walking through there. Like I had not known until then that when people were enslaved and kidnapped and brought from Mother Africa, mm -hmm. a lot of times they were brought because of the skills they possessed. 
-hmm. And those skills are used to help, you know, really train white people how to do certain things and educate. Uh, it, it is all, it's never taught that way, right? It's always taught right. as though you're bringing these beasts of burden over here mm -hmm. and maybe they learn some things from the Native Americans, they learn from the slave master and that's actually mm -hmm. a reversal of what happened. Exactly. And so I learned that there, I walked through, it was really amazing to me, but you've been engaged <laughs> in a lot of upgrades in that. Can you talk about those upgrades? So um, we received um, funding from the Ford Motor Fund to go in and upgrade all of the text technology in the core exhibit. And so, uh, you know, this exhibit opened in 2004, you know, so um, it's old <laughs> and it's, it, it is a very beautiful immersive exhibition, but the technology was outdated. You know, and I was running around, you know, replacing uh, DVD players with, <laughs> <laughs> with consumer DVD players, and you know, cabling was 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 uh, coming uh, apart, and you know, there was all kinds of technical problems going on with it, and so. Um, what we set out to do was uh, totally upgrade that technology and we created a, a intranet within the space. So, you know, a self-contained uh, intranet that uh, is tied to all of the devices in the space. So all of the projectors and uh, we've got what are called these bright signs that deliver uh, all of this video and audio in the space. And so we can take our laptops and sit, you know, anywhere in the museum and download video to uh, uh, any of those, you know, presentations in the area. One of the things we did was we had these uh, e-stations, about 13 of them mm -hmm. that sat dormant since 2000. And four, I mean, they never worked. And so now we have all of the, the I think there's 12 at this point, because we're gonna convert one of those spaces to something else. But um, all of those e-stations are, are up and functioning. And so the visitors can come through and um, they, can <clears throat> they can touch those screens because they're interactive and and uh, dig a little deeper um, into the story. Um, all of the interactives that we have there, the, the map interactive, we had these yeah. um, theater lights that were tied to the interactive and projecting <clears throat> onto the large map of Africa, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, through these gobos those started going out, the interactive itself was going. So all that's been replaced. And there's a, a laser projector that, that actually projects on to this large map of Africa. We've installed these air touch buttons. So you don't actually have to touch anything. You just run your finger across the button and it automatically activates. Cause we fancy. Right? <laughs> yes. I love it. Yeah. I love and, it. And there's, there's, there's an exciting exhibit that's, um, can you talk about it or is it too soon to talk about the exhibit that's planned for the that's space? That's coming? 
Can you can you give us some news? In that little no. space, yeah, we we gonna hold off on that for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll right. just say there's so many good things to come before yeah. we leave this. I I thought it was so interesting that you that that the the second building of the museum mm-hmm. was built by um, Dr. Wright, and um, and then that you you guys moved to the new building, and mm-hmm. that's when it became the Dr. Wright Museum of African American History. Is that true? It, it was actually still um, the Museum of African American History right. when we moved in. Right. And, and so um, all of those people, you know, who were delivered by Dr. Wright, <laughs> thousands, thousands uh, and those who have been connected with the museum and supported Dr. Wright over all these years, uh, you know, some on city, city council, everywhere, they got together and decided that it should be called the Charles H. Wright Museum. I know that's right. American history, and they made it happen. I know that's right. And then, and then, (laughs) and then the crazy thing is that your alma mater moved into the second building. Right, right, right. Just connected. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, graduated from there in the 80s, and uh, um, it was really interesting. You know, they came in and, and, uh, and bought that building and and you know converted it to gallery space and classrooms and and uh, put some new technology in there. They took our parking lot, <laughs> built <laughs> another structure over there. So yeah, yeah. So, so uh, what is your connection to the um, the college now? Um, right now we're just basically looking to. Uh, to forge a partnership with CCS to bring in um, interns, you know, to work with us on projects. And um, so there's some inter, you know, technology as it relates to some of the um, interactives we want to offer uh, that uh, these students have and animation and um, you know, just uh, uh, some of the cutting edge creative thinking that's going on. We're going to bring some of that in to the museum um, through our internship program. So that's that's what we're looking at working. Playing it forward. So there's going to be some interns coming from the college yeah. that you're going to look at them and say, you know what? You should be an employee here. I was in your position 40 years <laughs> ago. That's Let's right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know what, Kevin? It is yeah. it has been an absolute joy uh, hearing he, number one hearing about the legacy of Dr. Wright from one of his mentors and from someone who's been at the museum going on forty plus years. Um, I think I think we cannot stress enough, especially on this platform, how important it is for us to embrace radical truth telling when we talk about our history mm-hmm. and for us to urge our listeners to support the right. Go yeah. to the right, support it, bring your friends, bring it when when you have visitors coming in from out of town, take them to the right. Let's create, let's create a buzz about this magnificent place yes. um, in our city. Um, again, because it is especially right now, especially during the month of February. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta do it. Absolutely. You know, we, and right yeah. in line with that radical truth telling that you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons we have 
the King Tut exhibit. Yeah. Right now, you know, and uh, there's always been this effort to separate, you know, Egypt from Africa and, and uh, you know, suggest that, um, you know, King Tut was of some other ethnicity, but he was a young black boy. Sure was. And we're telling the truth about it. That's that why good. it's here. That's why it's at the Charles Wright Museum. <laughs> I love it. Okay, that's it. right. You know, because that's that's true. We talk about this. Kevin has kind of educated me on this. You know, when we look at North Africa, when we look at Egypt, um, people have migrated through places and the composition mm-hmm. of the population, you know, in King Tut State is certainly not the population that we have today. Absolutely. And and that has to do with conquest. And we know what conquest looks like over here in these United States. But, you know, (laughs) there are some conquerors coming from other places. Um, So, I mean, I'm really excited about radical truth telling. I do want to say the Eastside Community Network has sponsored and we're taking some of our neighbors to the museum on the 26th. So I want to go. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, you better call call Angela and let her know and put your name on the list. But yeah, we were taking a guided tour, really excited to do that. And I'm thinking one day we might want to host an authentically Detroit um episode inside the right and um, we can do that exhibit and you know and really talk about what it means and bring in some other museum staff so that we can help spread the word. It is an absolute gem inside of our community, and we are so proud. The fact that we have this museum and the fact that this is the largest city-sponsored African-American mm-hmm. museum. Mm-hmm. That's right. The Smithsonian is a national museum. It's the oh, largest okay. city-sponsored mm-hmm. African-American museum in the United States. Speaks to the fact that we are the blackest city in the United States. Black power <laughs> right. started here. Absolutely. our community. This is us. And so I That's think right. we need to celebrate yeah. this as the outcome of having a black mayor who is unafraid of telling radical truths and partnering with a black man. And, you know, um, it's amazing to me when you think about Coleman Young having a bigger vision for Dr. Wright's vision than he had Mm -hmm. on his own. And sometimes it's hard to relinquish your truth to somebody who can see a future you can't. But that museum is in a place, it's super exciting. It was designed by black Mm -hmm. architects, um, Howard Sims, Burner, yep. and I learned not too long ago that my brother-in-law, Carl Stafford, actually was the bond attorney on the deal to put it together. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. my people, you know, I feel people. Very <laughs> and, and all of that was happening. You had a black bond attorney, black architects. That's I hope right. we have black builders, but I don't know. And a black mayor who helped yep. a black man take his vision to the next place. That's so, right. Absolutely. I love right. it. Kevin <laughs> Davidson, thank you so much for joining us here on Authentically Detroit. Oh, it is my pleasure. It's been a joy. All right. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or you can send us an email. Just email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. It is time for shout outs. I got a couple. I got a couple shout outs, Donna, because I know you probably need an opportunity. I have a couple. Oh, okay. You got, okay. You want to go first or you want me to go? No, you go. All right, I would like to shout out uh, Bishop J. Drew and Lady Karen the Clark Sheard. Mm-hmm. Um, I had um, the distinct privilege and opportunity to interview them today as a part of the one year anniversary of the Black Church in Detroit series that I've been contributing on with American Black Journal at uh, Detroit Public Television. And I had the opportunity to sit across from them and, you know, really dialogue, number one, about the significance of uh, the leadership of 
the international church of God in Christ mm -hmm. being here based in Detroit, right? Um, the largest majority black city uh, and the leader of the largest African-American Pentecostal denomination in the world is here. I mean, there's so many, there's so many things that we talked about and the ups and downs of his ascent to leadership, but also losing um, his mother and father to COVID and uh, Lady Karen also suffering some losses. And so it was a really heartfelt conversation. We connected, we cried. Yeah. And so that, that interview is going to air, uh, is going to premiere uh, Tuesday. This upcoming Tuesday on uh, Detroit Public Television or PBS, wherever you are, um, at, at 7 p.m. Uh, for our hour-long special on the Black Church in Detroit. That's awesome. That's awesome. You, know, you, you, you got an Emmy last time you talked about the Black Church. Is a second Emmy in the making? Well, no, I got an Emmy talking about the media and its coverage of Black Lives Matter. Oh, so, I'm sorry. It's okay. But we'll, you know, you know what's funny, Donna? I haven't thought about that. It's so funny when you think about yeah, it's just the work is so amazing and the conversations are so rich and full that you're not thinking about winning an award. Like I was so I was so present in what they had to say and mm -hmm. their journey, uh, the journey that they've been on. And now as you know, leaders of the largest black Pentecostal denomination in the world right here in the city of Detroit. And Karen Clark Sheard is a legend in her own right, from the famed Clark sisters. She talked a little mm -hmm. bit about that in her, her story, solo career. And, and their daughter. And their daughter, but her yeah. also being in a coma and almost losing her mm. life and yeah. wow. talking about the journey, you know, with her husband sticking. But So watch the interview, y'all. The I full can't wait interview. To see it. Yeah, the full Listen, interview that, would be posted. The segment yeah. on the hour-long special will be about 10 minutes, but you really want to watch the entire interview. It was... Yeah. It was amazing. And I was so that honored was, that they said yes. That was my church for 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, Church of God in Christ. Yep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just watching uh, uh, Bishop uh, Sheard, his father, you know, he used to be at our church a lot. Um, and uh, my pastor was the, uh, uh, the great, uh, Ronald Larry Griffin, superintendent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, soup. soup. Yeah, Griffin. <laughs> but yeah, his father was head of uh, Church of God in Christ uh, International for years, and he wow. just ascended to the position that his father was in, and, and took took a seat there, which is so phenomenal to me. It is. Know? It yeah. is. Yeah, be sure to watch it. The other, I I have one more shout out. I want to shout out. Um, uh, Andre Perry, um, doc, Dr. Andre Perry out of Brookings, who continues to just be on the front lines and conversing about uh, the devaluation of Black assets in our, in our cities, um, and also on the front lines of, in, you know, having conversations about what's owed to Black Americans in the form of reparations. He ain't shy about it. And mm -hmm. so uh, we'll be hosting a forum featuring him uh, tomorrow in partnership with Detroit Public Television at noon. That's Wednesday. So, uh, but yeah, shout out to him. He He's a friend to the show. He's been on a couple of times. Donna. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to shout out Black Culture on display on Super Bowl Sunday. We were there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
God, that's right. You know what? Someday. Oh my goodness. I heard the Crip Walk made a, a national debut. It did. And you know what? It is it was just yes, it did. It was it was just so good from beginning to end. I truly enjoyed it. You know, I'd even missed Eminem really kneeling because Dr. Dre was playing the piano and I was right. like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening here. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're such a talented people and we just have so much style and I'm just so happy to sometimes have us showcase like that. Um, so I'm, I want to shout out that. I want to shout out our friend and one of our colleagues, um, Yusuf Shakur. Um, it's his birthday today. And this happy is birthday, their, Yusuf. Happy, happy birthday, yeah. Yusuf. One of our habitual guests who makes us put the explicit <laughs> um, warning on our podcast every time. Um, oh, you know, we he lost it. his mother recently yeah. and um, yeah. you know, there's nothing like a mother and there's nothing like losing one. And um, he is putting it all on display um, and on, the way he honors his mother yeah. um, is just so um, respectful to her personhood, to her womanhood. And it just makes me love him even more just to see that happen. But I hate to see his pain. Um, so it's his birthday and I just want to honor him on his birthday. I want to honor... You, I want to honor um, Phil Jones and Kwaku Ose, who um, brought us lunch today for Pharmacy Foods. Chef Phil. Such a cool concept. It Just is. wait until you hear what's going to happen with Pharmacy Foods and the Stoudemire. It's going to be right. amazing. You heard it here first. You heard okay, it here we gotta first. Get Chef Phil in the making. I'm telling you, I just see it all coming together. Um, so yeah, hats off to our partners and um, um, I want to honor um, the Kellogg Foundation because <laughs> we just got a new grant from the Kellogg Foundation. Congrats. So really excited! And he's got money from Kellogg that. in a long time. I know, right? And it's, yes. this is um, general great. operating support. You know, listen, all of the foundations who have decided to convert program grants to general operating support, let me bow down, saying we want to support your mission. We want don't to bow down. Just doing. tip your hat. Tip my hat, okay? I admire that. I appreciate that. Those of us who are working in this field appreciate the trust you have that we are going to make good use of the funds that you award us. Um, so that's it. All right. Well, we thank y'all so much for listening. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, we want you to catch the wave.